Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. Picture yourself a member of the 2000-2001 Washington Capitals. You're in the dressing room. You're getting ready for a big game against a Southeast Division opponent. And in mm-hmm. comes all six foot six in a business suit of Michael Jordan to say hello. And he's not just saying hello as an NBA legend, mind you. He's saying hello as a part owner of your team. What's your reaction? Okay, your boss. Your Michael boss. Michael Jordan is my boss. I'm texting everyone <laughs> on my phone. Michael Jordan is my boss, and he just walked into the room. <laughs> that was a fun story to write. If you haven't read it, it's on ESPN um, this week. It's a deep dive into Michael Jordan's brief but uh, surreal uh, time as a owner in the National Hockey League. He had to get approved by the executive committee. That's the part I loved is the idea that Michael Jordan had to walk into a meeting of the NHL executive board and uh, had to seek their approval. Meanwhile, this board is like three years removed from approving an actual criminal uh, to be an owner of an NHL team, a guy who, who was making up numbers on his bank sheet. Uh, but Michael Jordan, we got to make sure he's on the up and up before we approve him. Um, it's a cool story. And, and like, you know, I'd, I would have loved to have been in that owner's box with Jordan, John Ledecky, and, and Ted Leonsis and, and, like, watched hockey through Michael Jordan's eyes. Like, the idea of mm-hmm. now watching this sport through the eyes of another sport's elite athlete is something I'm kind of obsessed with. Like Ledecky talked about the fact that Jordan was really interested in the concept of a power, of a power play. Like in, in the NBA, you foul somebody, you go to the free throw line in the NHL, you foul somebody and your team gets to play against a shorthanded unit for two minutes. I mean, it must've blown his mind. And I love the part in your piece, too, of how he really did seek out friendships with other people of his stature in sports, which included a lot of hockey players like Mario Lemieux and Gretzky. Yeah, the Lemieux part's great. Like, I completely forgot that Mario's comeback was um, sort of a catalyst for Jordan's comeback. Like, they used to be golfing buddies and they used to drink wine that costs more than most of our houses growing up. and, And they used to just, like, trade notes. And then... At some point when Mario made his comeback after retiring in 97, Jordan started to ask him what that was like and what the dynamics were and how hard he had to work for it and stuff. And it kind of planted the seed in Michael's mind uh, to come back. But it's really sort of incredible when you think that in 2000, Michael Jordan was approved as an owner of the Washington Capitals the day after Wayne Gretzky was approved as an owner of the Phoenix Coyotes. At the same time, Mary Lemieux is in, is owning the Pittsburgh Penguins. It's insane to think that this league, man, this league, this league, this league. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and again, then you know, a few years removed from John Spano owning the New York Islanders. Uh, coming up on the show today, it's a fun one. We got Joel Ward talking about his retirement, talking about all his good times in the National Hockey League. We got Digit Murphy, the new president of the uh, heretofore unnamed Toronto franchise for the National Women's Hockey League. Um, in Toronto, so we will talk to her about her career and about all of the dynamics in women's hockey. All that and much more, including NHL plans for coronavirus, draft and restarting the season and stuff. On this edition of ESPN and Ice, let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on Ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on Ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey and, you know, the NBA connections to hockey, but also hockey. I'm Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan. I think I'm still a senior isolation reporter. I mean, just <laughs> live alone. <laughs> As we this. do the show, yeah, right. As we do the show this week, 
Uh, it is sort of in a limbo between the NHL's Board of Governors meeting on Monday, the NHL's uh, return to play meeting on Wednesday, and what we expect to be an announcement about the draft later this week. Uh, so where do we stand right now? What are we th- what are we thinking in so far as as current uh, plans for the NHL on the restart? Yeah, I think the draft needs to be figured out first, right? This was something that the NHL says we want to have in early June. They sent out that memo late on a Friday night that everybody got where Bill Daly's like, this is what we should do. And it felt like all the momentum was in the NHL's court of like, they're going to have this draft early and that's what's going to happen. Uh, then they had this board of governors meeting on Monday on the phone. It was nearly two hours. And I'm told that the NHL got a little bit more pushback than they thought they would. Hence why we didn't get a decision yet. And now, you know, the owners and GMs are kind of echoing some things like the general managers are saying is, what's the rush to do this? Why, why are you trying to do this before you complete the season? Do you not think that you're going to complete the season in the summer? And I'm told that there could be some shifting of focus now to not restarting in the summer, but maybe even restarting in the fall. And the idea being, we're not going to have fans in the arenas at all until maybe December. Like, that's aspirational at this point. Why are we racing to go and finish these games in July and August um, when it's still such an uncertain time? Like, what if we wait until September and October to finish the season, then take November off and resume in December? Now, there's a lot of complications for that in my head, <laughs> mainly being, what about that gosh darn second wave that we're expecting in the fall? Yeah, there's that. Um, there's how much players would need to have timing-wise to get ready for a season, um, i.e. the 2021 season, how much body rest their bodies need. Bill Daly has told both of us previously he only believes that the NHL needs about a month of off-season to get all of its business done, trades, free agent signings, the draft, everything else. So I've that heard would kind of days for mothers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would square <laughs> with it, right? Like, but right. Your point's taken, and it's something that I've been really thinking about because there's been so much discussion about the NHL having fans back in the buildings for 2021, how it's pointless to even play if that's not going to happen. That's how the league makes money. Um, the idea that you could push this into September and October and have some semblance of fans back in the arena for these games that are still yet to be played in, in the 2019-20 season it's something I've been thinking about myself lately, and it's interesting to hear that the owners might be noodling that through too, because it kind of makes a little sense. I mean, they're, rather than spending all of the money that would be necessary to stage these games in the summer, inconvenience everybody, everything else, and then do it in front of empty arenas just to get something on television and to fulfill obligations for sponsors and, and local broadcaster contracts, like, maybe you just wait and see if you can squeeze a little money out of this season with a couple of fans back in the building for these games. It's, it's not another realm of possibility, I don't think. I don't think so either. Now, as it pertains to the draft, I'm still pretty confident that we are going to get this early June draft and we're going to get an announcement <laughs> either late this week or early next week. Um, the NHL's reasons did make a lot of sense. Um, they said, okay, all of your issues that you have with these, you know, conditional picks – open the trade back up, just create new terms. We'll agree on it. It'll be fine. Uh, the draft lottery, we'll just go back to the way we did it before 2012. It's fine. The Red Wings will probably get the first or second pick. Steve Eisenman, why are you complaining about this? Um, and then the third thing is there's nothing going on in June. And if you think about the NHL, what they're really concerned about right now is money. And they know that they're two TV partners, especially NBC here in America. That's who they really kind of want to please. But also Sportsnet in Canada have pretty much promised 
we'll blow this thing up. We'll give you weeks of media coverage. We'll make it an event. Um, have it now. And I do think that conversation did speak to the NHL league office and it's speaking to the owner's pockets. Yeah. He kind of, he kind of jumped over this, this, some of the things they've put in that memo, um, which by <laughs> the way, was so, um, complete and in depth that you do start to believe that it's a, um, roadmap versus just a suggestion, uh, is, is the sense you got from reading that memo. And the fact memo. that it was so widely leaked. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the NHL is pretty good with their trial balloons during this stuff, but you know, the thing about the conditional picks part of it, it, there's only 15 trades that involve conditional picks, but the idea that you're relying on these teams to come to some sort of agreement and the NHL is going to dictate the terms of the conditions if they can't come to an agreement, it's kind of oogie. Like, I don't necessarily like the idea of oogie. the NHL. Well, isn't it though? Like, you know, if, if two teams yeah. are like, well, here's the conditions that we had and then the NHL's like, well, we're moving the draft up so those conditions are no longer the conditions and we'll figure out what the conditions are right now. That opens the door to a lot of sort of chicanery in my eyes. And not to say that the NHL is going to rule one way or another to help a team. But when you're trying to be the arbiter of fairness, um, one fan base is going to feel aggrieved. And if it's the wrong fan base and they think that you've given the advantage to a team that could be seen as an NHL darling, I could see how that might be a perception problem for fans. Um, Can I tell you my two favorite parts of the memo? Yeah, go ahead. One, there's another concern that I glossed over, and that's everyone's like, well, the trade, the draft is when we get all the trades, and the NHL just shoots it down. It's like, it's not as many trades as you think. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Right. And the other was this line from Bill Daly, which was a clear shot at the media where he's like, we'll create weeks and weeks of media coverage of draft, which will prevent our writers who have been basically speculating widely so far because that's all they could do right now. So at least we'll prevent them from doing that. So Bill right. is going to help us do our job. Thanks, Bill. It's a, much appreciated. <laughs> the other thing, obviously, is the lottery. Uh, we might have talked about it last week. I forget. I know I definitely have written about did. it recently. But uh, come on. Like you spent the last <laughs> three or four years telling us how much you think the league is poisoned by the concept of tanking and how the draft shouldn't just be you hand over a franchise player to one of the dregs of the league because they're so terrible. And all of these fail safes that they've done and monkeying around with the percentages and probabilities in the lottery, making sure that it's the three top picks that are, uh, you're in the lottery to win. And it's not just like one lottery for the top pick, all of these things that they've done for the last four or five years. And it's completely thrown in the garbage because the pandemic happens. And now all of a sudden it's like, let's make sure that the Red Wings uh, get either a foundational winger uh, who is going to score a bunch of goals in this league or the next Givgeny Malkin with the number two pick. Like, come on. And it's not to say, again, there's been this sort of misrepresentation of my feelings on this. It's not that I'm saying the Red Wings don't deserve one of those two players. The Red Wings are horrible. The Red Wings need all of the help they can get. I am completely fine with a team that has like a 245 regulation points percentage getting one of the top two players in the draft. That's how it should work. My problem was with the NHL just completely just doing this farcical nonsense of trying to protect the rest of the teams from uh, one team bottoming out and getting a top pick and then being like, oh, well, you know what we're going to do to solve all these problems you might have where the same team might get the top pick and win the Stanley Cup? We'll just give the top picks to the Red Wings because that's the easiest thing to do. Well, then don't waste our time with all this stuff about the lottery. Don't waste our time anymore. That's my point. 
I love when you get into sports talk radio mode and your Jersey accent really exudes. <laughs> it comes out of nowhere. And another thing, Mikey. Uh, no, we're not going to do Mike and the Mad Dog for the rest of the show. It's not going to happen. Um, one other thing about the NHL and restarting and stuff. Uh, well, two other things, actually. First of all, the Athletic had a poll that said 63.2% of the 57 players, sample size, uh, that they uh, interviewed want some regular season or playoffs this summer, potentially in empty, empty arenas. 21.3%, uh, I'm sorry, 12.3%, there it is, uh, said that they would rather the NHL cancel the rest of the season. Players from eight identified bubble teams voted 70% in favor of playing regular season games, which is not a surprise if you were a bubble team. You'd like to then be a playoff team if you're a bubble team. Um, the one thing that this poll didn't do, which we've talked about in the show before, and I think is really vital, is tell us the ages of these players. Um, because mm. we have heard time and time again from players that we've talked to, including Brendan Dillon, who was on the show recently, the players that are in their 30s, that have the kids, got the wife, got the family, got the old parents... Their minds are in a completely different place when it comes to playing through it during a pandemic than the 22-year-old who is like, I'm so sick and tired of playing Call of Duty and uh, and wants to come back and play hockey. Like, it is it is night and day as far as uh, where these players' heads are. And uh, I feel like a little bit more demographic information about the players who answered this poll, considering there's only 57 of them, uh, would have certainly helped. No, I think that's a fair point. If anything, the poll, which again is unscientific, but I do this stuff all the time. We got voices of players and we got to hear what they said. And I think what it really illustrated for me is that we are all over the map, even though a majority of players want to play because they're competitive and they're hockey players and whatever. Um, there are some quotes like, I mean, hotels, food to charter the European back. It's crazy. Wouldn't it make more sense to them just putting all this effort to try and get the season going to try to take fine time to focus heavily on making next season run smoothly? Like a quote like that is really interesting to me me yeah for sure for sure and i'm sure there's going to be more of them as we move forward finally speaking of ages uh you uh, tweeted something interesting about the olds uh this uh today yeah i was talking to someone this morning who brought up a point and then i was going to start reporting the story and realized that our colleague baxter holmes pretty much reported it for the nba side so i just tweet out his story instead um <laughs> but teams have brought up a point of like what do we do with People on our staff that are 60, 65 or older, which the CDC has says are at higher risk of, um, you know, complications if they contract COVID-19. If we're, you know, getting people to facility, can we tell them not to come? Is it, you know, how do we mitigate risk there? And it's a big conversation now that is starting to happen. There's a lot of coaches who are 60 years or older. Um, there's a lot of equipment managers who are 60 years or older and in the trenches. Um, what I was told from the teams is they really would love the NHL, when they come and figure out their return to play policy, um, offers some guidance and just says, hey, if you're over 65, you can't be around the team. And that way it can extract and eliminate a lot of these difficult conversations. And really, part of this is ageism, but it's a reality when it comes to health. Indeed, indeed. Well, everything's still in the air. I'm sure we'll get some clarity by the time you hear this or maybe by next week on uh, what future plans look like. But speaking of future plans... Let's find out what Joel Ward has in store uh, for his life now that he's retired. All right. Joining us now is a man who called it a career recently after 726 NHL games with the National Predators, Washington Capitals, San Jose Sharks. Oh, and let's not forget about those 11 games in Minnesota. Can't forget about that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Joel Ward joining us now on the program. And, man, uh, congratulations on a great career. I, I, I suppose the first question is, you know, when you decide to make it official, why do you make it official? Um, you know, I, 
because people kept asking me what I was doing and what's this, am I still playing. So, uh, you know, I just thought it'd be uh, a good time for me. I, you know, my little guy here, Robinson, he just turned one, and you know, a lot of things just kind of hit home a little bit, and I just wanted to uh, kind of put it to rest. That I'm officially done. I felt good about it, and um, I've obviously had a, a, quite a bit of time to think about it, and uh, just to let people know I'm I'm officially done. Done. So I understand you like to do these calls in the afternoon because you like to do them when you give your son a walk in the stroller. So you're being a great <laughs> yeah, dad right now at home. <laughs> he's at home, yeah, but- yeah. Right now, I got uh, this, the good thing of Sesame Street right now. He's uh, 20 minutes or half an hour of Sesame Street. We tried to limit a little bit of TV time, but, you know, now he's focusing on that. So that, that gives me a little bit of time. So it's easier if I, if I can get a nap in with him. Uh, I usually kind of make a phone call or two during that time. So... It's pretty tough, but I can find a find a find some time during the day to to do some stuff. Awesome. Well, yeah. Besides being a great dad right now, what else are you up to, and what do you want to do uh, in the next couple months or years? Uh, yeah, I feel like dad life is uh, taking most of time. I think when I finished playing my last game till now, I've been pretty much home twenty four seven. So it's been uh, it's consumed me quite a bit, of course. But uh, you know, as as the time went by, I kind of did some thinking a little bit. I think coaching is something I wanted to kind of pursue and and uh, look into. I've had so many great teachers and mentors and players and, and different philosophies I learned from some of the coaches that I've had that uh, I would like to try to apply that uh, and, and see if uh, if I can survive the world of coaching a little bit. So it's something that I've been interested in. I love the game. You know, I watch a lot of film, watch a lot of games, and just passionate about the sport. So. Uh, it's kind of like a direction I kind of see myself uh, kind of pursuing. Who's the uh, who's the coach you model yourself after? Oh boy, uh, <laughs> can I say like a hybrid of like a bunch yeah, of no, guys? yeah, take the best parts, man. Yeah. I, you know what? It's hard to say who would I uh, model after per se, but I can tell you that some of the stuff that I've had, I've you know, I had uh, Pete DeBoer here in San Jose, who I learned a lot over the years. Um, I had Kevin Constantine, uh, who really taught me hockey um, as I was coming through the pro ranks in Houston that, you know, really kind of changed my life. And then, you know, from a lot of different aspects, offensively and different minds, I've had Adam Oates, who was a guy that I looked up to that, you know, kind of helped me, uh, made hockey fun again offensively and, and taught me things that I never knew you could do on the ice. Um, you know, and then, of course, I had Uncle Barry Trotz, who was a guy that, uh, besides yelling at me every day, was uh, – taught me a lot taught me a lot of course of you know all the not just about uh, hockey itself but about life so you know i i would you know i'll try to take a little bit of of those guys that i've kind of had over the years and you know of course i started off with jacques lemaire um Mm. so i i've been surrounded with uh, a lot of great 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 hockey minds and coaches over the years that um it would be a damn shame if i uh if i kept that information to myself (laughs) Well, you know, it leads perfectly into one of the questions I want to ask you. Um, you know, you've been such a great ambassador for the game of hockey and especially expanding the diversity in hockey. And we talk all the time about how we can get more diversity amongst players, but we also need to see more diversity in coaching. I think Mike Greer might be the only assistant right now who's black, and, and especially in the management ranks. How do we get there? Exactly. And, and uh, you know, and, and Mike Greer was a guy that I looked up to. I, I remember asking him for a jersey uh, – well, not on the ice. I was too chicken at the time, but I had to go through a trainer to ask another trainer because these are guys that I, I, uh, I really looked up to and tried to play after who played a hard go- game. And, 
Um, but he's somebody I looked up to, and to see him in that is, uh, is an inspiration for me and, and a role model, you know, of, you know, not just players, but we can be coaches too. We can be referees. We can be general managers. We can be, you know, owners of teams. We can do it all. So um, it's just it's it's just great to see uh great to see more ethnicity more diversity in the game in all aspects not just playing but all facets of the game and and that's what uh i, I kind of want to bring to the table as well and and with passion and hard work and who knows how far you could uh you know who could achieve so that's just another besides the playing part now i'm on to that part of it so i just want to dream big and, and and try to excel and do the best i can at that i've always been really impressed with your um ability to, to take on these issues. Um, and by that, I mean, like, for example, like I was on your, your call with, uh, local writers, uh, when you announced your retirement and, and inevitably like the thing gets into the Keandre Miller stuff and, and other, yeah. other issues, like 10 minutes into your retirement phone call. Right. <laughs> I'm thinking yeah. to myself, man, what a, what a bummer. You know, he's, he wants to talk yeah. about his career and we're, we're talking about this stuff, but you, you engage on it and, and you're so passionate yeah. about it and you don't run away from it. And I, and I, and I, I always valued that about you. Well, you, you can't, you, you can't run away. I'm proud of who I am. Listen, I'm, I'm a black kid from Scarborough, from Toronto, back home. My parents are, you know, both from Barbados. I'm so, I'm proud of my Caribbean roots, my West Indian roots. So, um, it, it's, you know, as growing up and playing hockey, I faced a lot of parts of racism and it obviously still exists. Of course, there's a lot going on. And, um, and, and when I going through my experiences, it's hard because you don't, you don't, uh, it's hard to who to turn to, you know, it's hard to, when you're only a black player in a, in a locker room per se, it, it's different. Sometimes it can be difficult, you know, different challenges, different cultures, you know, I can't really, somebody may not be able to relate when it comes to, foods or music or what have you and all sorts of different cultures so sometimes you feel lonely i've had those moments so you know uh i always said one of my best years that i've had one of my favorite years of hockey was a i played with sean bell uh who was from edmonton and we played together in houston and we're both black and we're both roommates and it was just fun like to knowing that we could bounce ideas off each other we could you know feel and be ourselves at times sometimes you you know you go through so many emotions and Besides the, the, besides the pressures of playing on a day-to-day, trying to stay in the lineups, this and that, you know, and then you're dealing personal stuff. And it's hard when you look around the room and, and nobody really looks like you and nobody really has your same background. I mean, you know, be for me being a, a Caribbean background, it's hard to bounce off ideas against four guys that are sitting across that are from Sweden. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so you go through those challenges. And again, I'm very proud of who I am. Uh, what my parents have done for me and the way they raised me. And um, yes, I faced racism before and, and unfortunately it's, it's, it's uh, not going to go away, but it's definitely guys like myself and our job is to help to, uh, you know, keep that away from our game as best as possible. And the league is, as hopefully, you know, we, we preach about hockey is for everyone and diversity. Well, it, you know, it's time to really, uh, eliminate these issues and make it a safe place for guys like myself and other kids that are coming up because we just want to play hockey. As I said, you know, nobody else's retirement is 10 minutes in talking about race. <laughs> you know, you don't see other players, you know, <laughs> so it's just that, that exactly what it is. It is what it is, but you know, we're not here to shy away from it. We'll just be proud of who you are. 
No, I can't even imagine. I just remember, too, like two years ago, the Stanley Cup finals when the Capitals were there, and it was Devontae Smith-Pelly somehow was the only player who was asked, is he going to go to the White House? So you guys are often, you know, burdened with being the only guys that have to answer to this. Yeah, and it's, and it's uh, you know, those issues. It's also an eye-opener, too, for other teammates to see some of the stuff that we go to um, on a day-to-day and questions like that. Hey, we're just happy to win the Stanley Cup. I don't want to be asked if I want to go to the White House. Like, why is it, you know, right. ask that to the next guy and see how he feels, you know. So, it, you know, obviously when it comes to the topic of racism, it's, it's definitely a, a topic that a lot of people don't want to talk about, but, you know, it's something that we deal with and it's, it's, you know, I think it's just time for us is that, you know, we want to make it a place, a safe place to be in the hockey rink, in the hockey locker room. And, and we just want to play the sport and, and do the things that other players on the team are trying to do, score goals, win games, make saves, and, and et cetera, et cetera. For sure. Speaking of uh, winning games, was the run that you had in fifteen sixteen with the Sharks, was that maybe your most satisfying time in the NHL? Yeah, you know, you make it to the finals um, was a surreal moment, man. I, you know, when you win the first round, you win the second round. You know, second round against was tough against uh, the Predators, and you know, you're, you're, so many things are going through your mind. You're traveling, of course, and then you get to the third round, and we played the Blues, and then mm. you know, you're like, oh man, we're actually one step away of actually getting to the final. So after defeating them and then moving on even more, and then getting there it was. It was unbelievable. I mean, so many things are going through your head. And, and for me personally, just playing uh, university, Canadian University hockey and and going through, you know, all the all the, the trials, the ups and downs of, of trying to make it to this point of being cut by many teams, you know, and you're you're just excited for your family and everybody to watch it and you're just you're you're playing for so many people and and you just wanted to bring home that last little the cup, of course, and bring it home. And, you know, unfortunately we didn't. But I, the team that we had and the makeup and the build, I thought we were going to take it home. And that's what stings even more is I truly believe that I, we were going to win that series. And, you know, we came up short by a couple of games. So it's definitely tough to tough to look back. But, you know, very proud of that moment from where I came from, from day one till make it to the final. And trying to help the team win was, was something special for me for sure, 100%. We talk about your probable journey all the time, and we're about to get to draft time, so I wanted to bring up this story. In your Players' yep. Tribune piece, you mentioned going to the draft in 1999 in Boston with your mom, and you pretty much yep. went even though you knew you weren't going to get drafted at all, but your mom <laughs> wanted you to go because your father would have wanted you to be there. What was that yep. like being in the stand, seeing all these kids get their name called and just sitting there with your mom? Oh, uh, <laughs> where do I begin? <laughs> I began to drive there, the drive home. Uh, no, it, you know, it was, yes, we, we, I didn't, I was a long shot, of course. Um, and we kind of just said, hey, let's just go. We're going to do nothing on the weekend. It's a, you know, it's a little, little drive to Boston. Um, let's just see what happens. So, sure, you know, we got in, got out of cars, packed it up, and, and away we went. And I just, I remember being there and, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're, you hope it. Of course, you're there. You're like, oh, there might be a chance. You know, if somebody sees you, you know, who knows? I, I might get a chance to be selected. Um, the Sedin uh, brothers went that year. I think Patrick Stefan, I think, was first overall that year. Um, and you're watching guys get called out. And again, I just, I, you know, part of you, of course, you're there. <laughs> you're like, please pick me. <laughs> you know, uh, things didn't go that well, of course, but it did not. 
uh, deter me from playing, though. Like, you know, people ask, oh, how does that not? I mean, I still love the game because I wasn't selected to a team. You know, for me, I think I was drafted 15th round uh, in my OHL draft. Um, so I was never really the highlight player. I was never really the focal point on teams. Um, and I knew that. Who am I kidding? You know, so, but it never steered me of hating the game because I was never picked or, you know, I still picked up the hockey stick the next day and fell in love. I mean, I was still in love with the game and I loved hockey, you know. I, I, yeah, it had been cool to, to come back home with a jersey and a hat and, and to say I was drafted, you know, because it was a proud moment when I was drafting the OHL. Um, even though I was a 15th rounder, I still had my hat and my jersey I brought home the next day, whatever. But still, I, you know, the next day I still got home. Yes, it was a tough ride home, but again, uh, hockey that that did not. I still loved the game. I still watched hockey. I still I just wanted to play, and that was just the bottom line. Right, right. Last one for me, man. And I appreciate your time. Um, what, give me give me your thoughts now that you're you're you hung them up. When you look at what's going on right now with the potential playing inside of an empty arena during the summer somewhere, and that's not your home arena kind of situation. All this stuff that's being swirled around about hockey right now. Like if you were still playing, what, what would be your thoughts right now? Um, geez, there's enough time, and maybe I might be able to <laughs> come back. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm sure those guys are itching to play. I mean, this is the time of year. Come on, playoff time. This is the this is the reason why you play. So I know it must be tough for a lot of guys, hundred um, percent. You know, I I just don't know if it can happen. I I, I mean, I you know, with ice conditions and how they're going to go about it, it's a tough time for all. I mean, there's the bigger picture is safety. I mean, for, we're losing lives over this, you know, and I think hockey's definitely uh, got to take a step back here and just kind of really be careful what they're doing and making sure that I think the number one thing for these guys, especially is safety and, um, you know, and nobody to really get really affected by this virus to find a way to make sure this is kind of ending. And also, you know, ice conditions, another one for me, I would think mm. that's got to be pretty tough to put a rink together now and, have guys just come out of nowhere and just start taking each other's heads off for for a playoff race. Hmm. Uh, I find that hard to believe, but again, as a selfish sports fan, you know, I hope it comes back as soon as possible and hope, but obviously we all know that the safety of the players is the main, main thing. And that's, that's just the focal point right now. Of course. All right. This is my last one. It's a fun one. You've played with so many diverse teammates personality wise yeah. over your years. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> who is a former teammate you think will be the best coach besides you, uh, the best GM? And who, yeah. what is the one teammate that you think is going to be the most successful in their second career that has nothing to do with hockey? Ooh. <laughs> uh, ooh, okay. Uh, let me go with best GM. I would give that to... I, I think Paul Martin is a guy that I oh, play yeah. with. Mm, I like that pick. Uh, I, I, I love Paulie. He's an awesome guy. Um, and he's just a quiet guy, but he knows he play. I mean, he was one of the toughest defenders. That He was just a quiet, stealth dude. But knowledge of the game was through the roof uh, and an unbelievable human being. Uh, he would be a guy that I would say would could be a – or would be my pick as a solid GM. Um, that knows the ins and outs of the game. I think he just knows the on and off ice facets of the game. He's been around the block pretty good. Um, a player that would be a good coach, 
Oh, you can't pick yourself, right? Um, <laughs> Who do you most want to hold up against? Um, you, uh, I, I, I'm going to say uh, Matt Hendricks is a guy that I, uh, he was a roommate of mine, a pretty competitive guy. Um, I could see him being a pretty good motivator for players. Good motivator, yeah. Yeah, I could see him being a good warrior and giving some pretty rah-rah good speeches. <laughs> and, and then I could also see me beat him and then we'll go have a beer after the game. So, uh, Perfect. I, you know, I, I think he would be a good solid pick. And the last one, sorry, what was the other category? I forgot. So it's who's going to be successful in something that oh, has yeah, nothing okay. to do with hockey. Yeah, who had the best side uh, hustle? <laughs> ooh. Who... <laughs> Who would have the best side hustle? Um, geez, top of my head. That's a tough one, guys. I need like a yeah. day to think. Um, I'm going to say uh, Jumbo is going to be pretty solid. <laughs> I, mean, I know yeah. he's done well over his. He's going to done well over his career, but he'll throw out a few ideas here and here. I, I, I see his mind is always kind of thinking a little bit and always, uh, you know, a little bit in the stock market or something. I, I, I could see him doing well in that. Um, he's always yapping, and I, I could see his. Um, down the road still. I know he's done well over the career, but I'll, I can always see him winning and just being that guy. He seems like he does pretty good in the card game back there. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll top my head, I'll go with Jumbo as a guy that I can see being pretty successful down the road. Great stuff, man. Joel, always a pleasure. Fan- congrats on a fantastic career, and we'll uh, bump, you, bump into you down the road, man. Yes, please do. Please do. That would be great if we could. Thanks very much for having me, though. I appreciate it, guys. Our thanks to Joel Ward for joining us here on the podcast. And now, second segment, we're going to do some listener mail. We asked you for your uh, questions. Uh, as per usual, we got a bunch of them, and more than usual. And so we figured we'll just open up a whole segment for your questions and our answers to these questions. Like one from Craig, who wants to know, if the NHL wants made-for-TV events, why not expand the lottery instead of reducing it? The more teams that have a shot at the top 10 pick, the more fans will get invested in the draft. I mean, we haven't really heard about what the TV aspect of the lottery itself would be other than the fact that it would be televised. But, yeah, I mean, you'd figure you could make that thing a two-hour event. If you're if there's nothing else to watch and you're a hockey fan and they made a two-hour draft lottery, wouldn't you watch it? Do you know who's saying no to this, the hardest of hard no's? Who? GMs. <laughs> who, the whole reason that they've reverted to this previous system, you know, before 2012 with the lottery is that they can't imagine a situation where you could – potentially win the lottery and be a playoff team that would create havoc and mayhem in all of the group texts of the GMs that I'm sure they're having. You mentioned it before, though. Like, it is interesting to think about what NBC, which, I mean, doesn't really put a lot of time into the draft before the draft happens, if we're being honest, mm-hmm. how they would go about covering this. Like, are we going to see vignettes on players? And, and is there going to be, like, a draft preview special and things like that? I mean, I got to imagine that's the sort of thing they're talking about when it comes to uh, coverage like we've never seen before of this event, which is essentially what the draft needs every year because it's not a situation where we watch these players uh, in college football or in college basketball before the draft happens. Outside of like five guys, most casual fans have never heard of half these players. So um, it could be fun to, to see what on the American side of things the broadcast partner does. I think in Canada, we all know that they'll just cover this thing to – the ends of the earth. I mean, you'll, you'll know guys that go in the sixth round by the time Rogers gets done with it. Um, yeah. but we'll see. And I can tell on. you, yeah, those conversations are probably happening, but I did talk to an agent of a guy who's supposed to go in the top three to top five. And he's like, 
we haven't heard anything. Like the kids just waiting, you know, waiting to hear. <laughs> All we've done is taught him how to do Zoom calls uh, with GMs and coaches and taught him how to put a do not disturb sign on his door so mom doesn't come knocking in. Um, but that's all we got. Yeah. And, and, and also like uh, cries of joy from not having to do all those chin ups at the combine. Yeah, so exactly. Exactly. Uh, Michael wants to know how is the pause going to impact CBA negotiation, good negotiations in the coming year or two? Amazing question. Um, the answer is none of us really know. I mean, a lot of the things that are being bandied about between the players and the owners are very much CBA issues, whether it is what to do with the salary cap in the short term, whether it is how the players will repay the revenue loss in the long term. Um, but as far as getting a new deal done, Emily, you got to figure that there are certain pressure points that will be applied by the NHL during this shutdown, pause, resurgence, whatever, um, to try to get a, a deal hammered out with the players. Yeah, I mean, we had Kurt Overhart on last week, and he brought up a great point. Like, the reason he put out that paper was he's like, this is the time for reform. Things are open now. And I do think that's a general sentiment amongst um, a lot of people on the PA side. Like, if we're going to get something done, it's now. I will say, I don't think it's bogus when we hear that they've been more collaborative than ever, that the relationship has never been stronger between the player side and the league. So now might be the time to do it. And, you know, if you listen to the other sports, it sounds like that's actually the sentiment in Three of the four sports. The only one where the PA and the league are really warring. Do you want to take a guess? Where? Baseball. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't expect that either. Neither did I. Um, Maddie That's Blotz. the caveat being I used to cover the NFL and they're always warring. They they're hate each warring. other. And if you call the NFL PA, the first thing they'll do is like take a shot at Roger Goodell. Like, and you're like, <laughs> I just wanted to talk about like sandals, but okay. <laughs> Maddie Potts, Maddie Porter. Our good friend from Boston wants to know, bucket list hockey interview subject. Do you got one? Is there somebody you've always wanted I, to talk to? I always had one, and I think it still stands, even though he went into the public eye in the last 12 months, but that's Tim Thomas. Oh, yeah, for um, sure. And especially now, because as I was watching that Bruins-Stanley Cup Zoom reunion, um, I was fascinated by him because... It was his first time kind of around all the guys at once, and he wasn't too talkative, but it looked like he was just soaking it all in. And just to see him reemerge in the public life and kind of how he exited the public life and what's been going on in his brain and his health, like, yeah, a big sit down with Tim Thomas. I was genuinely touched when Milan Lucic led a toast to Tim Thomas during that call. That call was one so of my sweet. favorite things of the quarantine, I think. And it was just yeah. a really good hang. In hockey or life, yes. <laughs> uh, my, my bucket list... I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the show or not, but my bucket list hockey interview is Vladimir Putin to talk to Putin <laughs> about hockey, like nothing else, just hockey for um, like 20 minutes or 25 minutes, get his, his take on the best Russian players, get his take on Ovechkin. Um, you know, the problem with that interview is that if you get Vladimir Putin for 25 minutes and you're not talking about war crimes and tyranny and election fixing, you're probably not doing your job, not only as a journalist, but as an American. Uh, so it might be an impossible interview to actually do if I just wanted to sit down with Vladimir Putin and be like, tell me what you think about Igor Lurianov. Um, Emily, what are your most overrated and underrated hockey barns to watch a game? This is from uh, a guy named Greg, but not me. Okay. Underrated, I'm putting Winnipeg, just because they get stomped on a lot. And apparently people in Winnipeg were really offended when on this podcast I was complimenting Saskatoon and I said I'd rather have an arena in Saskatoon than Winnipeg. And that was no slight to Winnipeg. 
I love Winnipeg and I think it's great. Um, so Winnipeg's super underrated. It's incredible. Everyone should go, but I had a really good time there in the playoffs. Like it was an incredible atmosphere. And as for overrated, um, I actually think Toronto, just because mm. where the arena is is so cool. It's walkable to get downtown. It's across in the Hall of Fame, but the arena itself, while it's new and nice and they have some cool finishes, it's really sterile. It has the same problem as Madison Square Garden, uh, where there's a lot of suits. Uh, in the crowd and they're not very mm-hmm. loud and they're kind of late arriving. So that'd be overrated. Yeah, that's funny. Cause MSG would be my overrated. I think that it's, yeah, of course it was. I mean, it's a tremendously historic building and a great place for any event, but for hockey, it's okay. I mean, I admittedly, um, I don't think I've been there all too often lately where it's, it's really rocking. <laughs> yeah. Not since the, yeah. You moved the, when they, yeah, I mean, not, maybe not since good. the Rangers, uh, King series. Um, but MSG would be my overrated one. Underrated, I'm gonna go really off the, the board here and say, um. The Florida Panthers. Yes. That's really? the answer. For real. You I were joking, but board. that's the answer. The answer is the Florida Panthers. That arena is really, really, really nice. Now, is it located where it should be? Hell no. No one can find it. Um, is it ever a really good atmosphere inside? Yes, if all of the Canadian fans that are vacationing in Florida come to watch the game, then it's a really great atmosphere. Otherwise, it's kind of gloomy and 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 dreary. But if you pack that arena with people, and it was they gave, and gave them a reason to cheer, I think it's a really good place to watch a hockey game. Man, I had a, I had a really good time a couple times that I've been there down there to watch games. Um, so I would say that the pan the pan from a potential standpoint, the Panthers probably are are one I would say. That's a great answer. All right. But Winnipeg's better. Go to Winnipeg. They have a great airport. Airport's awesome. All right. Let's talk to Digit Murphy. And now joining us on the line is the longtime coach at Brown University and the CWHL. She's worked with USA Hockey and is also a co-founder of a professional lacrosse league. But uh, she's now joining the NWHL as the president of the new Toronto franchise. It's Digit Murphy. And Digit, I have to say, you're launching a franchise, a pro women's sports team in the middle of a global pandemic. What's up with that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, thanks for having me on the show. You know, you just got to keep going until they tell you you can't, right? I mean, it's uh, Sports 101. So, um, obviously, we're going to roll this out as safely and, you know, as thoughtfully as we can. But let's go and, uh, you know, strike while we can. Do you have uh, – do you get a say on what the name of the team is going to be, by the way? We will be rolling out the name very soon. So I did not have a say because – but when I got hired, um, they had already had that in the works, and they're probably going to be rolling it out. What's the date today? Probably in like a week or so. You'll oh, be nice. foreshadow, foreshadow. It's coming, baby. Nice. So you you mentioned uh, the, sort of the irony here, where you had been the coach of the Boston Blades for so long, as the only American franchise in the Canadian Women's Hockey League, and now it's completely flipped. Now you're the only Canadian team right. in the NWHL. What's that going to be like? Like, right, like, right, like, all I can say is, like, seriously, like, so <laughs> I fight, you know, we fought so hard, right, to have an American league and a Canadian league, right? Well, that's a blade. So that was, like, 2013 to 2015 uh, in Boston franchise. And it was really difficult for us um, in Boston at the time to be called the Canadian Women's Hockey League, right? The mm. sponsors are like, why do I want to sponsor you? You're in Canada. I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. But, you know, you know, for all these other reasons. So then when uh, the CW shut down and they didn't have uh, a franchise in Toronto, 
you know, they called me. Well, they didn't call me. There's a whole story behind it that if you want to get into, I can. But um, I just happened to be in a spot where I was uh, poised to help lead it. And I'm happy to do it because, you know, anything that I do um, is about growing the game, providing opportunities for women. I think earlier on the on, before uh, we got on the broadcast, I was saying I'm old as dirt. So, you know, bring it. Let's go. Let's uh, start something. You know, I think when everybody saw your name attached, they were quite surprised because you were with the CWHL and they were rival leagues. And I know, you know, you had some comments way back when, when the NWHL launched, kind of questioning yeah. uh, the sustainability of it. Why, you know, did obviously your views change? And, and what do you think when you hear those comments now? Do you cringe whenever it brings them up? <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. They all. Um, no, I mean, obviously women's sports has gone through so many iterations, right? And um, we're still growing. We're still trying to figure it out. And what people forget is, you know, men's sports has a long history. You know, they're probably about 125 years ahead of us, you know, if you really look at when sports first started. So, obviously, when when the NWHL did start, you know, I, I was a little concerned about their model because it was the same one as the CW, um, you know, where the markets that they were opening in were a little different. So, but that was six years ago, right? The reason that I think it's gonna, it's, it's evolved to a point where, yes, I can jump back in is because we have a franchise model, right? Mm. And, and to continue to do it in that league model, because again, you mentioned earlier on the show, we did lacrosse. Uh, my partner and I started that in what, 2015, 16, 16, 17. And then it kind of went, evolved into that other place, uh, WPL whatever that is. But, you know, again, to my point, we keep evolving. So, you know, when you look at jumping into this franchise model, I, I work now for a franchise ownership and Jojo Boynton, Ty Taminia, women leading the charge in leadership roles. That's really what my brand represents and what the NW represents. And that's why it's time for Digit Murphy to come back into this, this model of uh, women's sports. I'm glad you brought up the lacrosse uh, league and, you know, the fact that there was a competing league. A lot of it, I don't know if you agree. Do you feel like there's similarities between the landscape there and women's hockey that there can't be two, uh, you know, competing leagues to survive, especially when they're so young? Uh, you know, I'll tell you, when that happened, I was like, I'm like, really? You know, like, really? Do we really need to have two different leagues and, like, two different ways of doing things? You know, kind of like, when the, when the NW came up and the CW was happening, I'm like, can't you just kind of work together? You know, because it, it, uh, it's like when the men's hockey, like, you know, involved into those, you know, different leagues, but, you know, but different. Um, it's like, why do we have to recreate the wheel when we live in this small pond to begin with? So um, it's always a little frustrating uh, for me to watch it happen as someone that wants things to go faster. You know, I mean, Think about it. When I started at Brown, it was 1987, and, and we grew to where it is today. And the players right now are really benefiting, you know, from the hard work of, you know, people that came before them, like, you know, Laura Halderson, Julie Sasner, Katie Stone, uh, Jackie Bardo, Heather Lindstad, Kelly Dyer, like there's Tammy Granado in the early days. Like all these pioneers made it possible for players to get scholarships right in the NCAA so literally these guys got a lot of money when you really think about what the value was for the players in the NCAA they got over what so if you do a 50,000 times four years they got $200,000 in scholarship money in my opinion 
it's now the player's chance to take that same leadership role in the pro space and now exponentially grow it. So if you're if you're fighting amongst yourselves amongst scarce resources, it's just not a model that and you know we need to change that. Well, how do you change it though? I mean, you know, the other the other question I'm sure you've been asked a billion times since <laughs> hooking up with the Toronto franchises. Oh yeah, we we we're we're at a point of divisiveness amongst the players. Oh. What do you do to change it? How do you, how do you how do it you makes, put everybody back crazy. onto the same tent? Like no no joke, it makes me crazy because you know again, as someone that's been in the sport for so long, it's about creating opportunities. It's always about flattering the other people that are trying to grow it. And you know the PWHL, they've got their model, and you know I'm happy that um, that's where they want to go, but. Our model is really about women coaching women, you know, leading women, having a sustainability model, you know, talking franchise owners being female. Um, So, you know, that's where we want to go and we want to have a positive message, you know. And and personally, like, if they wanted to come, you know, play with us, like, I've got no problem. If they want to do cross games, whatever they want to do, for me personally, you know, I don't know, I'm not speaking for – from my ownership or anything, but I, I think that our ownership would really embrace whatever positive energy should come of this um, because we do want to unite and that's the only way to change it. I mean, I don't know if you did any background on me, but you know, back when we started something called United Women's Sports and the idea mm-hmm. was to actually unite all the sports under one umbrella, which is another thing I have, um, but to, to make it more um, viable uh, to, to, to put money into it, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, the theme that we had always had going forward was to unite people, not tear them down, not be divisive, not say anything negative about them. And that's what our franchise is going to be all about. We have three pillars that we're going to espouse when we're in Toronto. It's about empowerment, inclusion, and education. And when you have those three pillars, there's no room for divisiveness. And uh, every player, and you know, I've got nine, I'm going on 10 players that we're signing you know, every player is cut from that cloth, and that's going to make us successful. So you talked about players. You're signing them. What's your recruiting pitch? What's your one-sentence elevator? Like, this is you, why you got to sign Toronto it. this year. You just heard it. You just heard it. I <laughs> like, and I, and I always tell them this. They say, listen, this is about the sustainability. It's about women's empowerment. It's about the three pillars of success. I already said them. Empowerment, education, inclusion. And it's really about the mission. If you want to grow and be a leader and be a hero and a role model and do things women-friendly, for women, by women, and I also say to them, and you guys are going to laugh, I go, if you're doing this for the money, hang up the phone right now because <laughs> this is about your it's, – because it's true, right? Yeah, and yeah. that's, that's the, the, the problem with the whole thing of women's sports right now. It, it becomes about the money. And, you know, that's excluding women's soccer, like different plane – you know, they're putting hundreds of thousands of people in the stadi- in stadiums. That's a, look, that's a sustainable revenue model if it can, if you can continue to have kind of crowds. And what happens in women's sports, guys, and trust me, and I, I keep telling you I'm old as dirt, but I've been around for a long time. It's about the revenue. What are you doing for ticket sales? What are you doing for merchandise? What are you doing for, you know, broadcast rights or however you place it? In order to sustain a livable wage for these players, even, let's just do the math, $30,000 a year, that's nothing. That's the poverty level, right? Times 20 players, that's 600 k just for salaries. 
times six teams, that's $3.6 million, right? That's just the salaries. So now you have to sell that many tickets, have that much revenue coming in just for a 16 league. And that doesn't include ice or anything else. So I think you're getting my drift onto why the models aren't working right now. Um, and, and quite frankly, it's, it's about society, you know, embracing women's sports like they do men. And that takes time. And I hate to say, you know, I'm someone that wants to, to keep this thing like chugging along at 90 miles an hour. And unfortunately, society's chugging at like 25. Right. When it comes to women's sports. Do you think an NHL endorsement of some sort could um, expedite that acceptance? I mean, I mean, absolutely. And I think the NHL being part of this is a great and to what we're doing. I don't think it's an either and an or. I think I think a sponsorship or a partnership is where, where we want to go. Personally, I don't think the NHL taking us over does a women's empowerment platform that much good, although I would completely welcome the help and the guidance and the mentorship and how to grow it potentially differently on the women's side, you know, using resources because it is hockey, right? Hockey, hockey, men's or women's. And we're in like you know, that fourth kind of tier. Anyways, you got football, you got baseball, you got basketball and whatever, you know, it's probably basketball first, the football these days. And then, then baseball. Then, so we have to play 90 games on the men's side to generate the revenue, you know, that we have to. So, you know, when you look at their model, um, you know, they're not going to, I believe, especially with COVID now, they're going to embrace women's hockey, which, you know, is going to take two years to, to cash flow positive. Uh, right away. So why not be a partner sponsor, step it out and uh, do it that way. But, you know, I think differently. I've been around. We mentioned off the top the challenges of launching a team in the global pandemic, um, but you also mentioned ticket sales and revenue, and you're going to need to find an arena to play in. Uh, where do you stand with that, and what type of criteria are you looking for? Is it going to be another kind of smaller arena or something that we see similar to the other NWHL franchises? Will it be a little larger, more ambitious with how many yeah. people you can fill there? Yeah. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned a couple of good points, you know, trying to roll this out in April during a pandemic it has its challenges. So, you know, I think we would, we probably will go into an arena uh, that's similar type to the NW uh, other venues now. Um, this, is a, this is a long-term strategy by our franchise ownership. I mean, it's not going to be like we're going to go into a 5,000-seat arena and fill it. Again, you know, our, our sustainability model is on a path, you know, three to five year path. I mean, it's not going to be overnight. With that said, yes, we have um, an arena, a couple of arenas in mind. Um, we need, obviously, a professional type arena that has, you know, seats that can seat, you know, thousand people or so. Uh, you know, the number one goal would be to fill those arenas. But, you know, you need other things that the players um, really demand. And, and as a coach, right, I demand it all the time. Uh, locker room space, gym, uh, it's just simple things like, you know, warm-up spaces. You know, like you go into some of these uh, municipal arenas and you can't warm up your team. Like as a coach, that's really annoying, you know, as a mm. professional organization. Um, you know, like just access to things that, you know, men's sports take for granted and college sports take for granted, which I, which I see why some of the players get ticked when they go from NCAA to, to the next level pro and they kind of put it in quotes because – it's, it's, it's hard because, you know, amateur sports and, and NCAA sports, they don't have that interim space to go to, if you will, right? So right. I think what we're going to do is roll it out with, 
these criteria in mind that I just said, you know, making sure we have probably in a smaller arena to, at the beginning, making sure that, you know, parking, all the things that go along with a franchise, uh, a good franchise arena and partner. And, you know, we'll go from there. And then, you know, hopefully in the next few years after that, you never know, maybe we can graduate into a, a larger arena. But I think the first step is to fill the stands with a, with the rinks that you have. And mm-hmm. once you do that, you can, you can elevate. And there's other revenue streams that, you know, people aren't thinking about right now that, you know, appearance fees, like, you know, talking to, uh, you know, companies that really want women uh, involved, like uh, places like, you know, we have a kid right now that's deciding whether to play that's an investment banker, you know, mm-hmm. and and how cool is that to have an investment banker and like doing a speech in front of like a technology group of little girls or something like that, you know, or, you know, yeah. a financial, mm-hmm. you know, so there's, there's other things creatively that I don't think that people are thinking about because they just think about the traditional model of sports being, oh, this is how the men do it. But again, like we said earlier, 125 years versus what do we have, like 20 years? Takes time. Yeah. Uh, after all this coronavirus stuff, we better start thinking about other ways of making money too. <laughs> it's like we got to tap some new veins. Last one for me, hey. Digit, and thank you so much for doing this. Um, oh, curious about your fun. time in China. What was it like uh, coaching oh that team um, and the it experiences there? Yeah. It was a blast. I mean, you know, I it, it was so much fun. Um, you know, we were we were the boots on the ground, right? It's just like this, mm-hmm. like, okay, there's no team in China. We got this, right? There's no team in Boston, in the U.S. We got this. There's no team in Toronto. We got this. So it just seems to be uh, uh, my fate is, uh, I guess, a first. But it was um, it was different because there were only 294 total players in China, right? Wow. Total women's hockey players in China when we got there. And we're like, whoa, this is going to be really tough. Uh, but um, we had an unbelievable owner. He was into it. It was freaking awesome. We'll definitely pick your brain further about that sometime. But we do appreciate your time. Before you go, any can we get hints on the team name logo? Like, are we going to see alliteration? Maybe a mythical figure? Oh yeah. Ooh. Um. Yeah. I I couldn't I couldn't do it. You know, I think that my owner would probably fire me on the spot if I leaked it. I like no leaks, but you know, I will say that uh, it's, it's appropriate. It's modern. Uh, I think I think it's representative of the community, uh, and I think that you're going to be pleasantly surprised with our name, and a lot of people are going to really love it. So uh, we will be the new kids on the block, but you know we'll figure it out. And uh, hopefully, lastly, I want to tell you, and to all my recruits that are listening, ship, we're going to build a championship team, and we're coming at everyone. So uh, you know <laughs> we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to get there. Thank you so much, Digit. Thanks for having me. It's a blast. Right, thanks to Digit Murphy. For all of it. You know, there was a long time I thought that if they put another team in Toronto, they should name it either the Blowers or the Rakes in uh, mm. retaliation to the Leafs. But I doubt oh. that's where they're going. That's what that would No, I they're think they're looking the for team. more partnerships, not... Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Mm. All right. Speaking of the Leafs, let's talk about a category we named for a former Leaf that features a lot of Toronto writers. Uh, it's time for our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and and strained narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs, our weekly look at the hyperbole, mistakes, foibles of the hockey media. This time we're not going to Toronto. We're going to Boston. Two friends of ours, Joe McDonald and Fluto Shinzawa at The Athletic. They did a fan poll 
of uh, Boston fans asking a number of questions, including which current Bruins players did they think would be in the Hall of Fame? As to be expected, Chara, Bergeron run away with this thing. Marchand, Tuka Rask get their share of the vote. Way in the back, 12.3% David Krejci. A uh, very good player, very good second-line center. But uh, the fans say, nah, not really a Hall of Famer. Joe and Fluto say, Chara and Bergeron are no doubt first ballot inductees. Voters don't seem to agree, but Krejci should be a Hall of Famer one day, too. He hits all the marks and is a proven postseason producer. What? (laughs) I mean, I know my Hall of Fame standards are a little higher than most. But David Krejci's a Hall of Famer? I don't think so. I don't think what, I don't know what measure you'd apply where he'd be a Hall of Famer unless it's a every Bruin gets in category. The Czech Hockey Hall of Fame. He's in. Yeah, Czech Hockey Hall of Fame, sure. Uh, players who have uh, an interesting use of the letter J in their last name. Sure. Hockey Hall of Fame, David Krejci? Get in line. Jesus. All right. Puck headline time. Dateline Forbes. The Pittsburgh Penguins have the most passionate fans in hockey and the ninth most passionate fan base in sports, according to a photo gallery disguised as an article on Forbes.com. Would you say the Penguins have the most passionate fan base? They're a very passionate fan base. I I wouldn't say they're the most, but they're small but mighty. I'm trying to. Th- I, I a do, small market. I People do think don't an argument, realize. Though. Like, like the Penguins yeah. have that Steelers-esque thing, where no matter where you are in the country, there seem to be Penguins fans. The fact that yeah. they invade, or a Penguins bar, right, right, exactly. The fact that they invade uh, Capitals games and go in, and party on the steps afterwards and stuff. I don't know that there's an argument to be made for for the Penguins having the most passionate fan base. So passion's a tough thing to measure. Like, you know. The Flyers would be in that conversation for passion. I mean, if you're talking passion, if you're measuring, I think like, Islanders would be passionate. Yes, that's exactly where I was going to go. Islanders, I'm reading your mind today. Well, yeah, and well, that's also because we know that the Islanders fans are psychotic. It's <laughs> so, like, <laughs> as fans of the New Jersey Devils and New York Rangers, respectively, yes, <laughs> we do know that. All right, Dateline uh, Switzerland. The Swiss Hockey Federation says it won't seek to host the 2021 Men's World Championship after losing this year's event due to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, the 2020 championship was due to start in Zurich uh, and Lusani? Is no. that what you say? Sure. Lusani? Of course. Uh, it was canceled in March, and Swiss officials said that they had talks with the IIHF and 2021 co-hosts Belarus and Latvia about Switzerland taking their turn. Uh, but that has now been ruled out. So the Swiss will have to wait to uh, get the IIHF World Championships. I do wonder how other, um, you know, events like this are going to shake out. I mean, we've talked about the Florida All-Star Game and maybe that not happening if we have a truncated season. Are we still doing the Winter Classic? I mean, there's a lot of stuff for 2021 that I think is sort of maybe up in the air because of the pandemic. Yeah, no. And one of the reasons the Swiss Federation said was the financial risks were too great and there's no guarantee that we're going to even have a championship in May 2021. You hear Megan Rapino go on a podcast today saying, I don't even know if the Olympics are going to happen. Um, yeah, but this is our new reality, man. Everything's canceled. Indeed. Also canceled facial hair. Dateline Joe Thornton's face. Jumbo's beard is gone. 
His his daughter used her genie powers in a video to make his beard disappear. I don't know how I feel about this. And by genie powers, you mean TikTok powers? <laughs> it's like editing powers. Yeah, he's yeah. he's all baby faced now. He looks he looks spry. He looks like he's twenty six again. It's crazy. When do you think the last time he was like this? I mean, he's. I can't remember the last time he didn't have a beard of some sort. Maybe I mean, God, you had me going back a decade. Maybe no. Maybe I don't know. That's a good question, but it looks very strange. Um, Dateline uh, TSN. All right, you make the call, Emily. TSN's doing all-time teams for Canadian franchises. They're including the previous incarnations of the Ottawa Senators back in like the 1920s and the Winnipeg Jets back when Team Muslani played there. Is that a good call or bad form to pretend that um, previous incarnations of teams that have moved to other cities are actually part of those franchises' histories? I would have to phone a friend and whatever my fine friends in Winnipeg say, whenever they want, I would say yes to. <laughs> if they want Team Mussolini, I'm giving them Team Mussolini. The Jets one's a tougher one. Like, I don't, I mean, who cares about the Ottawa Senators? The Senators. The, the, right, right, the turn right. of the century. But like, it's really hard to be like, who are the best Jets of all time? And be like, you can't include Dale Howardchuk and Team Mussolini. It's a little bit hard to deal with that. So I, I don't know. It's, but again, then it comes down to like, if it's the Coyotes doing this list, they're, they're not putting Solani on the list. Like they, they don't really, they recognize the Jets, but they don't recognize the Jets. So. Would it be like the Minnesota Wild trying to take credit from Mike Madonna? Yeah. It would, yes. It, well, I mean, I don't know. It, it's a little bit yeah. different in, in the sense that the, they have different names, but I mean, like it, I guess it's, the, it's to go back to your NFL roots. It's the Cleveland Browns question. Like, do the, do mm. these Cleveland Browns get to claim those Cleveland Browns? Uh, gotcha. even though they're a new team. Yeah. I don't know. Finally, Dateline NHL Pause Rewatch Club. What did we think of watching the Mario Penguins annihilate the Rangers in our rewatch game this week? It was really fun. Um, it was fun. You know what? Like, I was so young then. I never watched the Rangers before they won, so you can kind of feel the angst of that team a year before the cusp. Everything was going wrong for them. But it was so cool to watch Mario literally when he was dominating the league, just scorching earth when he came back from Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, and that team was just stacked. There was just so many good players on that team. I have no idea how they didn't win the cup that year. It's incredible that they didn't, and it's also incredible to think how effortless Mario made everything look. And it was also really cool, like you said, to visit – that Rangers team where you started to see the pieces fit. Like they started, they had like maybe three quarters of the Edmonton players that they were going to acquire. I think the only guys that weren't there yet were um, Craig McTavish and one other guy um, before they, they, you know, were, were sort of actualized. And it was also fun to see like Amante on the team and Mike Gartner on the team and the guys that would eventually be traded for other significant pieces for the 94 team. So it was a very, really fun I mean, the game itself was was fun only to see Mario dominate everybody, but it was also a really fun moment in NHL history for those two franchises to sort of revisit as well. Um, all right, that's a show for this week. Loaded as usual. Uh, Digit Murphy, president of the Toronto NWHL Club, thank you. Joel Ward, thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, read the Michael Jordan story on ESPN. It's long. Not as long as the 7,000-word story that's dropping on Thursday. But it's long. <laughs> What's that? Uh, the lines thing. 7,000 words. Oh, holy cow. Yeah, I know. It's good times. Yeah, I wrote a magazine story, basically. (laughs) 
Well, I'm Emily M. Kaplan, and I don't have carpal tunnel syndrome right now because <laughs> I'm not writing that much. But bye. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.